You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Ellen Winter, who is a professor emerita at Boston College, professor in psychology, and also a senior researcher at the Project Zero, which is part of the Graduate School of Education at Harvard University. Ellen's also the author of a couple books, Uneasy Guest in the Schoolhouse, Art Education from Colonial Times to a Promising Future. Also this book called uh, How Art Works, a Psychological Exploration. And then you also have this uh, book you co-authored called Studio Thinking and a couple other books. This book, How Art Works, it's you, you teach psychology, but I think this book kind of crosses the line a bit between psychology and philosophy. And the other book, Uneasy Guest in the Schoolhouse, is it's really less about art psychology than it is about arts education. And indeed, you start off the book, How Art Works, with a couple of stories, right, from your life, from your research history, where you talk about arts education. And you have these two examples, one where you went to, as an Emilio Romana, and then the other where you went to, to China. And this is in the early days of your academic career to look at how they taught art. And I think those two paradigms seem to be the, the whole story of how art is, you know, been incorporated into education. It kind of goes back and forth between those two sort of paradigms. So, so maybe we can just sort of start off by asking the question, you know, why is there such an uneasy relationship between education and the arts? Why do you, the teaching of arts and the study of arts, why is it sort of come in and out of our attention? You know, why is it that sometimes we think it's essential and, and other times we think it's sort of a luxury, it's, it's leisure, something that we, we don't really need to, to really have as, as part of our, of our life? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right that the contrast between what I saw in China and what I saw in Northern Italy are the two extremes very progressive approach and a very strict rule-governed conformity, non-progressive approach to art education. And I see art education in the United States as having gone back and forth, back and forth, though I think we're coming more towards the, coming out more towards the progressive end, which I clearly favor. In terms of why, I think we are, really have a blind spot about the arts. People don't really understand the arts. They think of them as frills, as fun, as pretty, but they don't understand their deep significance for humans. And I think that's why psychology has marginalized the arts. People who do the psychology of art are few and far between in psychology, just as people who do art education are few and far between in the world of academic education. And of course, in our schools, the arts are given very short shrift at the most one 40-minute session a week, typically. And I think it's because the arts are not thought of as serious subjects. So they're not things that school is supposed to be spending their time doing. Well, I mean, why is that? I mean, you know, arts have been essential to human life since, you know, we became humans, right? I mean, you go back and find painted caves and so forth. And and I think when you, when you observe hunter-gatherers, I mean, they probably spend at least as much time telling stories or participating in different 
artistic activities as they do, you know, hunting, right? So why is it that we have sort of, you know, marginalized the arts? I mean, it, I, I wouldn't even say it'd be marginalized because people, normal people do spend a lot of time consuming the arts, whether it's music or literature. So it's, is it just that it's not sort of seen as, as a worthy object of study? I think that school is thought of as something that is supposed to advance our country make us more economically successful. And usually that means science and technology. So, you know, in the 19th century, people were being prepared for jobs in the manufacturing sector. And now we're preparing students for jobs in the, in the digital sector. And the arts are just not seen as anything that's going to earn a lot of money or make a lot of money. And so they're thought of as frills. And that's why there's this huge push for science education, math education and very little for the arts because they're not seen as useful. Well, I think so. A lot of people who are trying to preserve the place of arts in education, what they'll try to do is they'll try to argue that the arts are useful in that they help develop these other traits that are valued. So for instance, if we think that reading and math is important, then we'll say, oh, you got to learn arts because it's going to help you with reading and math. Right? <laughs> it's going to help you become a better employee. But this is not new, right? I think this hasn't this really been something that we've been doing for centuries, right? You, you described back in the 19th century, this idea of like industrial drawing and, and so forth. Right. In the 19th century, you learned how to draw in a very precise way, step by step, by copying. It had nothing to do with making anything beautiful. It had nothing to do with self-expression. And the purpose was to learn to be precise so that you could go into the manufacturing sector and design textiles, design tools, design ships. And of course, this was for the working class. The elites may have taken drawing classes at home and learned to do landscapes or birds and very pretty pictures, but those were not supposed to be anything that was going to lead to a vocation. But art education in the schools in the 19th century, both in Europe and in the United States, was to train the students in the vocation of drawing precisely so that they could go into factories and design what factories needed. So the idea that the arts are useful and coming up with some extrinsic reason for the arts is not new. It's just the particular thing that the arts are supposed to do has shifted. So we no longer talk about how the arts are important because they're going to train people to go and design tools in factories. The 20th century version of this was that it was going to raise test scores. And there are so many claims out there that the arts raise academic performance, uh, music makes you smarter, the arts for Americans, arts for, now I'm forgetting the website name exactly, push the idea of arts and test scores. And so did the Music Educators National Conference. And they would release, the Music Educators National Conference released data every year showing the average SAT scores for students who had zero, one, two, three, and four perhaps five also years of music study. And what they found is that the, the SAT scores were higher the more music you've taken. And so, of course, they made it seem as if this was causal, that music is actually causing the SATs to rise. Well, experimental research has long since debunked that and has shown that the kind of students who are willing to take five years of music and stick to it are already a self-selected sample of high-achieving students. 
Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to take a deeper dive into all of the research that you have both done, and also the research that you describe in, in the book. But I think, you, you know, you got a little bit of pushback, right? When you found when you found that the claims were unsupported by experimental data, there were a lot of people in in the arts world that were kind of encouraging you to bury those findings, right? They're like, hey, you're you're gonna make it more difficult for us to obtain funding, right? So, I mean, have have many people in the arts world kind of given up on kind of advocating arts for its own sake? Have they just sort of acknowledged that the only way that they can kind of keep arts in the curriculum is that they have to work within this this paradigm that it's good for the other stuff, for you know, reading and writing and technical skills? The research that I did that showed that there was no basis to the claim that arts improve academic performance was done with my colleague, Lois Hetland at Massachusetts. She was then at Project Zero. Now she's at Mass College of Art. And when we published a series of 10 meta-analyses where we took research by other people and grouped them together and did and, and did a series of overarching analyses of the data to see whether there were any whether there was any evidence for a causal claim, we found nothing. And we published this. And yes, we got huge pushback. Somebody called me up from a foundation and said, You're gonna you're going to ruin quality education in the arts for the children in this country. Somebody else who was a scholar at Princeton, not even in this field, when he heard about this, he said to me, you should not have published this. You should have buried these data. These are dangerous data. So what Lois and I said is, you know, first of all, what we found is accurate. And let's face it, let's confront it. Because if we say that the only reason to have the arts is because it raised test scores, all we need is a smart superintendent to say, well, a, what's the evidence? Or B, if we really want to raise test scores, let's just have test score prep because direct training is always going to be more potent than indirect training. What we said is what we'd like to do is change the conversation about arts education. Let's talk about what the arts really teach. What are the kinds of thinking skills that the arts enable us to have? And that would actually be a much better justification for why we need arts education. So we put ourselves in arts classrooms in two different high schools in the Boston area, the Boston Academy of the Arts and the Walnut Hill School for the Arts. And we spent a year videotaping what was being taught and interviewing the teachers. And then we spent another year coding the data. And what we found is that the teachers were actually trying to instill, whether they were aware of it or not, they were trying to instill a number of big, broad habits of mind, like learning to look really closely or learning to envision, which really means to generate mental imagery as you plan a work, or learning to reflect and to evaluate. We came up with a number of these habits of mind that we saw over and over again, and we said, look, what's going on in visual arts classes is the teaching of broad habits of mind that artists use when they create. And these habits of mind are clearly important, not only in the arts, but in, in all of life. It's important to be able to observe, to imagine, to envision, to reflect, to evaluate. And so these are the real outcomes if arts education is done well. These, what we call them, studio habits of mind. And I've had former students of mine who have taken up this line of research with different art forms. Not, namely music and theater. 
And there's been quite a push towards looking for habits of mind in art forms. And a number of teachers across the country have taken up the studio thinking approach. It's actually shocking to us how much this caught on. And we felt very good about this because first we were hated for having published this negative research. And then at least we published something positive that teachers felt really spoke to them. They said, yes, this is what we're doing. We didn't have the language for it. We weren't using these terms, but it makes perfect sense to us. And it also gives us a good way to advocate to the superintendent and the principal and the parents why what we're doing is important. Now, it's important to point out that these habits of mind that you're talking about, if these were kind of attributes or characteristics that the students had before they went into these classes, right, and then that would explain the correlation, but it wouldn't give these classes any credit for helping to develop these. So how do we identify the impact of the classes? I mean, so much of the research that you talk about in the books is is correlational research, right? And you find that, oh, people who have had this much training, you know, have these various attributes. And so that's certainly true for the test score results and so forth. It's all correlational. But how do we know that the the habits of mind that you're talking about are not also just, you know, the people who select into the art classes, they already have these things? Right. But let me say two things. First of all, the research that we reviewed and meta-analyzed was not all correlational. There were two kinds of studies, correlational studies and experimental studies. The correlational studies found a very strong relationship. Yes, the more arts courses you take, the better you do in school. That can be self-selection. It could be causal. But we also reviewed the experimental evidence where you take two groups, one gets art, one doesn't, and you test them before and after. And you look at whether the art group grew more in test scores or academics or grades or whatever your outcome is. And there we found no effect. Now, when it comes to the habits of but, mind. But before, you, before you go on there, I, I guess one question I would have is in the world of education and, you know, Project Zero is affiliated with the School of Education. Why do we have so few experimental? I mean, the number of correlational studies was pretty big. And that's what led people to think that there was this causal relationship. And the causal studies were, were much fewer in number. Is it just that they're expensive to run? Like, why don't we think of education as a, you know, the same way we think about all these other scientific endeavors where, you know, we're doing experiments on on everything. Why is it so hard to run kind of, you know, A-B tests on different educational interventions? Why are these studies so rare? Yeah. Well, first of all, government funding is now pushing people to do randomized controlled studies of education of educational techniques, of educational approaches in the classroom. And if you want to get funded in education, you better be doing a randomized controlled study. However, it's also extremely difficult to do. It's not that it's expensive. It's that it's very hard to get a school to be willing to take a classroom and divide it up randomly and then give one some kind of treatment and one some kind of control treatment. The parents would probably complain, right? They'd say, oh, wait, why is Johnny getting the art class? <laughs> and, you know, Jane is not, right? Exactly. So it's, it's not like doing medical research. It's much more complicated. And it's not like doing laboratory research because you're actually going into schools. Now, I will say we've just completed a large-scale study of the effect of orchestral music training on young children from kindergarten through the end of second grade using an approach that's called the El Sistema-inspired approach. This is from an approach developed in Latin America where students are actually... the Venezuelan uh, Dudamel approach, right? And students are learning to play an instrument in an orchestra and are doing this intensively, like maybe four or five times a week. 
and we did a randomized control study. And the control group were the people who, the children who had applied to the school. And it was a lottery method for getting in. And the lottery losers were our control group. And the lottery winners were our test group. And we followed these children from the end of kindergarten to the end of second grade. And the outcome we were looking for was not grades, was not test scores, not standardized test scores. We were looking at executive function measures. That means the ability to attend, multitask, keep two things in mind at once, plan, and we use standardized executive function measures. We haven't published this research yet because we're just finalizing the data analyses, but I have to say we were unable to show an effect. We worked on this for a number of years with a number of cohorts. It was really a massive study. It wasn't that expensive to do because we had a lot of student volunteers helping us. But there's an example of a randomized controlled study and it did not show that music training in orchestras had an effect on executive function. Uh, I'm sure you were, you were able to find that with, with the acting experiment, right? Uh, the acting experiment by Talia Goldstein did show not executive function, that she looked at empathy. And the idea was that in, when you're an actor, you're putting yourself into the character's shoes, so you're training yourself to take other perspectives. And she was able to show after a year, she had a control group doing visual arts and the test group was doing drama. It wasn't a fully random study, however, because we couldn't tell, tell parents, your child has to do visual arts and your child has to do theater. So we ended up getting kids who were self-selecting. So it wasn't a perfect study. It's just very hard to do these. But I want to come back to the studio thinking work, because basically what you have asked me is, how do you know that students are actually acquiring these habits of mind? And I have to stress that we only studied what teachers were trying to teach. We did not study the acquisition of these habits of mind. That's a huge area of research that needs to be explored and undertaken. And I'm hoping that somebody in the younger generation will take this up. The problem is it's very, very difficult to come up with good measures that don't trivialize. So we tried with my former student, Jill Hogan, we developed measures of looking, how closely you look, measures of envisioning, and we developed these measures, but we're not happy with the measures because they, they were like, we asked people to look at two pictures that were alike except for a few details and asked them to circle the details that were different in the two pictures. And to me, this seems like a far cry from actually looking closely at, your, at a model that you're drawing and looking closely at your work of art. So I would rather have more fuzzy qualitative measures of observation and envisioning and reflection. But these have to be developed. So I make no claims that we've shown that these habits of mind are actually acquired. I think that we're, we're laying out the research agenda and saying, this is what, this is how artists think. These are the habits of mind that artists use. This is what good teachers in the visual arts are trying to instill. Now let's see if students are gaining these habits of mind. Well, it seems like assessment is going to be necessary. I mean, you talk in the book about how, you know, after the Sputnik moment when the government started funding all of this investment in art teaching, then ultimately they wanted to know what's the ROI here, right? What's the impact? And 
you know, one of the reasons why we emphasize the things that help prepare you for standardized tests is because we can design a standardized test around it, right? We, 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 we teach the things that we can measure. So, you know, is, if we can't measure the, the outcome, then I think the, whoever's funding these classes and, and maybe even the parents will start to wonder, right, whether or not their students' time is being wasted and their teachers' time is being, being, being wasted. Only if they think that there has to be a, a measurable outcome. If you think learning the arts, learning in the arts is important in and of itself because it's a fundamental human activity and it's something that we all engage in. If you believe that, then you don't insist on having some kind of extrinsic outcome. Now, we don't really question the importance of studying mathematics, the importance of studying science. We don't even question the importance of athletics. Yeah, I was going to ask you about athletics because it seems like athletics is exempted from the pressures that are on the arts in education, right? We we don't, there may be, I think you mentioned 76% of Americans think that arts education will help them with their reading and writing and so forth. And I bet a similar number think that sports and athletics will help them in some way. But I think that for most people, if you demonstrated that sports had zero impact, they'd still support sports, but... Why do we say that sports is sort of an end in itself or helps to develop characteristics or traits that are, you know, separate from passing standardized test scores and yet valuable, but we don't, we don't have the same approach to arts? I think we're Philistines. I really do. I think that we Americans in particular are kind of like a, a cowboy country and we don't really appreciate the arts. I think they're more appreciated in Europe and in Asia. I mean, in China, I witnessed children from kindergarten on getting intensive training in both calligraphy and in Chinese brush painting. And I think it's because it's valued because it's part of the culture and they're proud of it. Yeah. But you also say that, you know, the, and I want to hear about sort of the, the progressive movement because the progressive, the sort of, you know, the Dewey movement back in the late 19th, early 20th century, right? There's, there was a movement here in Maria Montessori and Rudolf Steiner, right? This idea that you can't really develop as a full person without some kind of exposure and training and participation in the arts, not just sort of appreciation of arts, but the creation of art. So I want to talk about that movement, but you emphasize that this is not the same as sort of a, a laissez-faire approach. You don't just put kids in a room and say, hey, go create. I mean, there's training involved, right? Yes. So what Dewey said and the other progressive arts educators that came along with Dewey, let's let children create on their own don't teach them step-by-step step how to draw a cow. Let them invent their schema for a cow. Let them discover. Let them reinvent the wheel. You know, in Chinese art education, they teach you exactly how to do everything. In American progressive education, you let the, the child discover. But it's a real misunderstanding of progressive art education to think that the child is given no instruction at all. Usually in a good progressive arts class, the teacher will ask children to draw challenging subjects like, now we're going to draw how you feel when you have a stomach ache, or now we're going to draw yourself going to the doctor, or we're going to go outside with our paints and we're going to paint, we're going to sit on the sidewalks and we're going to paint the scenery around us. It's not just anything goes. And the teacher is supposed to intervene at the right moment, at a teachable moment to help the child progress. But all too often, progressive education in America was see, was misinterpreted by teachers as just do anything you want. When my son was in kindergarten, I walked into his art classroom to observe, and I saw that the teacher just laid out the art materials and said, draw. 
Mm-hmm. And so the class was in chaos. Uh, nobody was interested in it because they weren't challenged and they weren't given any constraints. So it is not just laissez-faire, but that's something that's often mis- mistaken for that. Well, that sort of, there was a pushback, right? So you talk about this um, DBAE, right? Which was sort of a, a pushback. And, and I think it's a pushback that is totally understandable, right? So I think the, the idea in the 50s and 60s was, hey, you know, we need to educate people to become the professionals in their field, right? And so if we want people to become scientists, we've got to teach them what scientists do. And so if we're going to, you know, raise people, we're going to teach people arts, we're going to say, okay, this is what, you know, professional, this is what arts professionals do, right? So what was good and what was bad? First, just kind of describe that movement and then talk about what, what do you think was good and what do you think was kind of misguided about that approach? Well, DBA stands for Discipline-Based Arts Education, and it was heavily funded by the Getty Trust in California. And Elliot Eisner, one of the leading arts education academics in the country, he was at Stanford, led the charge. And the idea was that art education should teach kids the structure of the profession and that they divided the structure of the profession into four different units. One was art making. The second was art appreciation. The third was art criticism. And the fourth was art philosophy, aesthetics. And the idea was that in each art class, all four of these components of the arts were to be taught and woven together. And who was going to teach this? The classroom teacher. How were they going to learn to do this? They were going to have a few weeks of training at the Getty, funded, run by the Getty in various places around the country. And they were going to learn how to do this. One of the reasons that Elliot Eisner wanted, thought this was the right approach is because he felt that the progressive approach had just turned into chaos and that nobody was learning anything. And he developed a measure of art knowledge, which he gave to high schoolers. And he found out that nobody knew anything about the field of art. They didn't even know what century Picasso was in. They were, they didn't know anything about techniques or media. They knew nothing. And he was appalled. So he felt we have to, we have to teach art history. We have to teach aesthetics. We have to teach art criticism along with making. And the problem with this is, while I think it's great for students to learn all of these things, when you don't expand the amount of time in an art class or the number of times in a week it meets, and when you don't have trained teachers teaching these subjects, you're going to have very superficial teaching. And... Art educators were not trained in art history, and they were certainly not trained in aesthetics or in art criticism. So it was really unfair to expect them to teach this way. But this is something you could put like an AP exam on, right, for the most part. It would be easier to design an exam to test your art knowledge, right? Exactly. And it became a very verbal thing. Like you would measure outcomes by asking people, when was Matisse born? What are the colors in this painting? What are the typical colors Picasso uses? You know, you could answer them verbally, and that's not really what the arts are about. So they, they measured things not by actually seeing how kids created in the arts or how they thought in the arts, but by how they could verbalize correct answers to rather superficial questions. Now, the Getty did put out curriculum guides so that teachers could actually follow along. But, you know, if a teacher isn't trained in art history or aesthetics, it's really not going to be well done. So that was the problem with DBAE is people were perfectly happy with the idea of having courses in art history, aesthetics, and art criticism, but 
then you have to actually have trained teachers and have more time in the art classroom. And if you, you talked about science education, but, you know, in science class, kids are doing science. They're not learning about the philosophy of science. They're not learning about the history of science. They're actually doing science. That has to come first. And so we at Project Zero developed a counter argument to DBAE, which we called Arts Propel, which was an approach. Propel stood for production, perception, and reflection. All three of these are important, but production or making has to come first. And perception and reflection have to grow out of making. And I can give you an example if you want of how we thought about this. Yeah, I want to hear it. Okay. So suppose you are creating a portrait. You might learn something about art history by having your teacher come by and say, you know, there are other ways of doing faces. Let me show you how Medigliani did it. Let me show you how Rembrandt did it. Let me show you how Picasso did it. And that's how you're learning about other artists. You're not learning about art history in a systematic, chronological way. But when you need to consult with how artists have done something, you're motivated to learn. And so you turn to them. And then reflection would come in because Propel believed that it was very important to keep journals and sketchbooks and have students write their thoughts about what they were doing and write their evaluations, their self-evaluations of how they thought they were progressing. And so making came first. And as they created, they would turn to other works of other works by artists to learn how to improve what they were doing. And they would also be reflecting on what they were doing. So art history would be kind of squeezed in, but not in any systematic way. But it seems like a kind of a formalist approach to art history, right? Or it kind of reminded me when I was reading about it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, Alfred Barnes's approach, right? <laughs> Which is very, very much a part of the progressive school, right? Where the history is kind of the context of the what's happening around in the world of the artist is sort of a, a backgrounded, right? Yes, yeah, so we weren't actually, I don't know if it's a progressive view of art history. It's a scattered view of art history because we weren't actually, we didn't think it was important that students in elementary school and high school have a chronological understanding of world art history unless they were taking an art history course. What we thought they should be doing is taking a studio art course and along the way they would learn something about art history and maybe they would then be motivated to take a specialized art history course. We weren't pretending that this would actually give them a full understanding of art history, but we were saying, of course you would learn about other artists, but only in the context of what you were working on and how it could actually open your eyes to your own work. In the book, How Art Works, you begin the book just trying to define what art is. <laughs> we probably should have started with that, but, but to some degree, right, what counts as art is in the eye of the, the beholder, right? And it means that you're looking at something in a different way, right? And you experience something in a different way. So if you're looking at something that is a mere representation, right? Like if it's an instruction manual or something, you're going to look at it differently than if that exact same representation is, you're told it's art or you, you believe it to be art in some way. Is that way of looking something that is part of the, the studio habits of mind? Is that something that... Actually, well, we didn't actually try to tackle anything about the definition of art in the studio thinking research or, or curriculum, but but it is the case that if you try to define art, you will be unable to succeed at coming up with any list of necessary and sufficient features for what objects count as art. Philosophers have tried to do this over the centuries. 
And there's always counterexamples. It's not anything that's beautiful. It's not anything that's expressive because they're always counterexamples. Some art is ugly. Some art is not expressive. It's not skilled. Some art is unskilled. So Morris Weitz was a philosopher at Brandeis University, and he came up with the idea that art is an open concept because artists are always expanding what counts as art and therefore will never be able to come up with a set of necessary and sufficient features. And it's an open concept with fuzzy boundaries. So then Nelson, philosopher Nelson Goodman comes along and says, well, something is not art or not art, but something can function as art or not art, which is, I think, what you were getting at. So if I tell you that this line, this squiggly line on a canvas is a work of art, you're going to look at it aesthetically. You're going to pay attention to the textures, the thickness, the angles, the expressiveness. Is it, is it an angry line? Is it a gentle line? You're going to pay attention to the composition. Does the composition work? If I tell you that that same line is the stock market, and these days it would be going down, you don't care about the texture and the color and the composition. All you care about is the direction of the line. And you could translate that line into numbers and get exactly the same information. You cannot do that with a line that's part of a work of art. So Goodman's saying anything can be art or not art. And if you think of it as art, you adopt an aesthetic attitude and you pay attention to all kinds of features that you wouldn't pay attention to otherwise. Now, in terms of studio habits of mind, I think that you could argue, we didn't make this case, but I think one could argue that by learning to look closely at works of art, whether they're one's own, those of one's peers, or those of artists, one is learning to take an aesthetic attitude. But I mean, that's, it's a little bit different though, isn't it? I mean, I studied painting for a bit and, you know, part of what I learned there was to see things differently, see things that I hadn't seen before, you know, see shadows and see shapes and that I hadn't seen before. But I didn't think of that as, a, as an aesthetic perspective because it opened my eyes to things. The aesthetic perspective is when you, as the way I understand it, is that you kind of switch on a lens. So there's that famous case of those pranksters who put a pair of eyeglasses on the floor in a museum, right? And then, you know, people were like, is it art or is it not art? And they would flip on and off the kind of switch. And I guess the question is, is that capacity to look at things through an aesthetic lens, is that something that you develop and you become kind of more practiced at it so that you can see it in places where other people can't see it? And I, I was thinking you, you had this wonderful chapter in, in the book about negative feelings, right? And horror films, right? And how some people, right, go to the horror films and they, and they just they just feel bad. Others feel bad and good at the same time, right? And the, I guess the question is like, can the first group become like the second group? Like, can they learn and teach themselves to, you know, develop a kind of detachment, an aesthetic sense that would enable them to experience the, the positive on top of the negative? I'm absolutely sure that this is a capacity that has to develop and it can be taught. And we don't really teach it very much. And this is perhaps one of the things that DBA wanted to do to teach to teach aesthetics, to teach, and they did actually develop some aesthetic education curricula. We don't spend much time on this in, in our art education courses. This is not something we're born with. However, I do believe that children have the raw ingredients at a very young age for aesthetic experiences because those are, and they're, these aesthetic experiences that they have are not directed towards the arts, but they may be directed towards nature or towards playgrounds. They can be completely mesmerized and in states of flow as they are staring at 
animals or staring at bugs or racing around on a, on a merry-go-round. And these capacities for flow and intense pleasure and for activities that have no extrinsic outcomes, I think, are the raw materials for aesthetic experience. But learning to perceive aesthetically and make fine discriminations and really switch on that lens and think of something as a work of art and see it as a work of art requires making, it does require making fine discriminations, looking really closely. And that's something that art connoisseurs are very good at and ordinary people are not. So it is definitely something that comes with practice and with training and with a mentor that opens your eyes and helps you see. Well, in addition to, I mean, you say an aesthetic appreciation, but there's something special about things that are man-made, right? And you emphasize that oftentimes the distinction between art and not art requires some element of, of intentionality, right? Some intentional creative act, which means you wouldn't find that same thing in a tree, right? Unless you believed in, you know, divine creation. No, I think that's what you're saying is very important. The I, You know, when you're looking at a work of art, that this was made by a human, a human mind. And that has a very powerful effect on you because you ask, what was the artist's intention? What was he or she thinking? The brushstrokes become records of the artist's feelings and thoughts while it was being made. And if instead you're looking at accidentally spilled paint and you know it was at just accidentally spilled paint, you just don't adopt that kind of mentalizing towards it. And I think this is very relevant today, this issue, because now we have artificial intelligence art. I mean, we can look at a painting by Rembrandt and find out that actually it was painted by a deep learning machine that had mastered, had learned all the paintings of Rembrandt's, had learned to identify Rembrandt's, and then finally it was able to spit out new Rembrandt's. And I think that if you look at a painting and you just, and you know that it's by a deep learning machine, you react to it very differently than if you think it was Rembrandt. And I think you don't feel as much awe. When we look at a painting by Rembrandt, the original, not a, not a reproduction, we know that we're looking at something that Rembrandt touched. And that's a very powerful feeling. And I don't think we get that feeling at all when we are looking at something that a machine spit out. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if we can kind of talk about these studio habits of mind and what exactly they are and you know how they... I dare say it. How do they make us better humans? Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> is that is... And I'm very wary of those kinds of big claims. I'm not right. sure that art education makes us better. And I don't mean better in some utilitarian sense. I just mean it in, in the aesthetic sense. Okay. I think it may enrich our lives and make us and lead to well-being. People often make the claim that the arts make us better human beings. And what they mean by that is they make us more empathic, kinder, gentler. That's actually very difficult to prove. Well, and Martha Nussbaum, I know, is a proponent of that view, and Richard Rorty also, right? And at least with respect to literature, I don't think that they make those same claims for other types of art. It's respect, is particularly with respect to literature. I'm actually in the midst of a series of studies on literature and empathy. And actually, I think that we are beginning to be able to show that stories about suffering actually make us more empathetic towards the group that we're reading about than factual expository texts about that suffering. So I think that there is something to be said. Well, is that, is that just because the authors of fiction are, can speculate about the interiority that you're not going to get with a third-party account? I mean, a memoir, because I, like I always, for me, I have this book categorization problem where I have history section 
where I keep my books and I have a literature section where I keep my books. And when it comes to memoirs, I put them in the literature category and I don't put them. So if it's a memoir of someone in, in battle, you might think I'd put that in a, you know, in the history section, but I put it in the literature section because I feel that it has a similar impact on me when I, when I read it. I agree with you. And actually in this research that we're doing on stories and empathy, we're doing, we're using a memoir. We're using a memoir of an undocumented immigrant. And so it's not fictional and you know, it's true, but it's not expository text. It's about the person's experience. So I'm not making a claim about fiction. I'm making a claim about stories, narratives about individuals. And that I do think that that has the power to make us more empathetic, but it's certainly not doesn't make us more empathetic in general. Certainly, we haven't shown that. It makes it's a much more specific thing that if you are reading a memoir about the suffering of undocumented immigrants, this is what we're working on, you can actually change people's attitudes towards undocumented immigrants and make them more empathetic, even if they started out very anti-immigrant. You can make them more empathetic. That doesn't mean they're going to be nicer to their next door neighbor. Or, you know, just generally a kinder person. It's not a general empathy. It's, you can change. It's really about attitude change in the direction of empathy. Now, Martha Nussbaum, I know, has claimed this, but she wasn't basing it on empirical study. She's a philosopher. She wasn't doing psychology. So, and of course, often psychologists take philosophers' claims and then try to operationalize them and subject them to empirical tests, which is what, really what psychologists do. Well, you mentioned a couple of different types of empathy, right? So I think there was less disagreement about the cognitive empathy piece, but the where you're, the next step is, does that make you actually, you know, more kinder and gentler towards those people? And, and you're arguing that it may well be that as well. Yes. Well, cognitive empathy usually means just understanding the other person's situation. And you could be very good at understanding somebody else's perspective, but not care at all about their suffering. You can be kind of Machiavellian about it. You know what the person is feeling, but you don't want to make them better. But in the studies that I'm describing that we're doing now, we're actually showing that people's attitudes do become kinder towards the particular group that they've been reading about. But this is just the very beginning of these studies, and we need a lot more, and we need to look at how much this generalizes towards other things besides the actual kinds of people that the story you're reading about is about. Well, so now let's talk, turn to the, the studio habits of mind and maybe we can dig into them. And, uh, you know, I spent some time studying art, <laughs> not very good. And I, I learned, I think I learned a, a couple habits just studying the creation. And I think, you know, studying the appreciation of something or inhabiting it is, is different from actually producing it. And so if you're, say, consuming literature, it has an impact. But if you're producing literature, it probably hasn't even bigger impact. If you're observing paintings, it has an impact. But if you're producing paintings, it has has a different impact. So what what is the impact, the extra impact that you get from learning how to produce as opposed to simply consume or appreciate? Well, I have a former student named Jen Drake who's been doing a whole bunch of research on the emotional benefits of making visual art. And now she's turning to the emotional benefits of viewing visual art. I think that the making benefits are stronger. I think what she has been able to show is that making, even a person who's completely untrained in art, making it, just asking that person to make a drawing or a painting quickly, you know, in maybe 20 minutes, you can measure self-reported mood change and people actually feel better after they've made the work of art. 
And she has all kinds of control conditions where they're copying something or they're crossing out all the letter H's on a page. So she has various kinds of activities that she's comparing to the drawing to. And it's the drawing condition where people feel better. And then she wondered, is it, do they feel better because they are working through some problem that they've been dealing with and they are expressing it through art and kind of cathartically letting it out? Which would be, be the, the Aristotle view, right? Just exactly. Yes, yeah. the, yes. So the, the, the Freudian, Freudian view, view, the Aristotle yeah. view, the art therapy view. Or is it just that they're turning their minds away from their troubles and entering into a different space? And so she's compared those two by giving people different instructions, you know, draw something you're upset about, or she induces negative moods in people. And then she says, draw something about how you feel now or draw something completely different. She gives them something different to draw. And then she measures their self-reported mood. And what she finds over and over again is it's the ones who are using drawing to distract themselves or to escape into a different space that feel the most better. Both of them work for elevating mood, but distraction and escape work even better. And you could find quotes from artists which support this. Like, but would that be would that come from any flow type experience? Well, I do think that she's also measured flow and has found that flow is related to the pleasure you get in making, and you can get flow in both conditions. But the greatest mood elevation comes from when you're not thinking about something that you're upset about. It is a way of getting into a different kind of space. Right. And so I think that that's not one of the habits of mind. I'm not really I'm talking about the habits of mind here, but I am talking about how making art can improve well-being. And artists have often said things like, when I make art, I forget about my troubles. I escape. It's the greatest escape there is. Yeah. And why do we read fiction? Why do we watch movies? We are escaping. And, you know, the... People can escape with genre fiction the same way that they can escape with, with great literature. So, but I think you have a whole section on what makes for good art, right? I can't really escape with genre fiction. <laughs> I get bored really quickly, but I know quite a few people that can. And so if, if escape is what you're after, it seems like, you know, it shouldn't matter whether it's poetry or pushpin to, to, to quote Mill, right? Let me bring in the concept of feeling moved and making meaning, because I think that's really important for art that is a good art. It moves you and you reflect about it and it's very meaningful to you and you connect it to your own life and you don't stop thinking about it. I would call it airport fiction. It's an escape, but it, it's not really moving and it's not deep and it doesn't get you to think and you forget about it right away. Well, sometimes you can be so moved that you just can't. I remember I can't see King Lear more than I got to go a couple of years between viewings because I, I can't I can't take it. Right. So it can be very challenging and is, but if you think about the greatest works of art in any domain, whether it's music, literature, painting, they tend to, these works tend to elicit negative emotions in us. They're tragic. So why do we want to keep going back to them? Why do we want to experience these negative emotions? And one of the answers to this is that when people feel, when people are looking at art that elicits negative emotions, it's very, they also feel positive emotions. Because A, the beauty of the work, and B, because it, they make meaning from it. And it's the meaningfulness of it gives you a positive feeling. And so when you're feeling very moved, you have an, always have a mixture of negative and positive emotions. And so I think that the works of art, great works of art, do improve our well-meaning because they get us to think, they get us to reflect, 
um, and they get us to grow. So I found you talk about observation and how important it is. In business schools, you know, we have these design thinking classes. They're fundamentally classes about observation, right? Teaching people to, to pay attention, teaching people to expand their focus and narrow their focus where appropriate. And this seems to be a skill that artists have, right? That is much more highly developed than in non-artists. So, I mean, is this the kind of thing, do you think that everybody should get exposed to this at, at some point in their life to a large degree? I mean, I, I had art classes in school and I don't think they really offer art classes in a lot of school. I think it's been squeezed out. Recess has been squeezed out. Shop has been squeezed out, right? And art classes are being squeezed out. Where, where can people go to get these studio habits in mind if they're not going to get them in kind of K through 12? I mean, I think you can get these studio habits of mind also in other kinds of classes. Like for instance, let's take science. You can learn to observe really closely. There's some things you might not be able to get. You probably aren't going to get practice in expressing feelings in science class. Generating mental imagery, you could certainly need, you actually need that in science class. If you're thinking about the structure of a molecule, for instance, and trying to rotate it in your mind. I do think the arts might be the best place to develop these habits of mind. But I'm not saying that these are the only places. In fact, some teachers are trying to take the studio habits approach and use it for the teaching of other fields like science in particular. So if you get kids to look closely at things and to be reflective about things and to, and to be meta-aware of their process and also to get them to learn to evaluate what's working and what's not working, already you would have the beginnings of a studio habits of mind approach to a non-art form. But we can't really say that learning to pay attention to in, in visual art class is going to make you a better attention payer in science or in history class. That's a transfer claim. Learning in one domain transfers to another. Transfer has been notoriously difficult to demonstrate in psychology. They used to say you should study Latin because it will make you more logical, but that turned out to have been debunked. If you study Latin, you get better at Latin. So whether or not these habits of mind transfer has not yet been demonstrated. I would love it if they did transfer. That would be a wonderful finding, but that is an empirical question. Yeah, I remember that. You know, when I studied Latin, I was like, why am I studying <laughs> like, oh, well, it's got all these nebulous advantages, which I don't think I've actually managed to uh, reap at any point <laughs> in my life. But yeah, so transfer, I, there's a huge section in both books really on transfer learning, which I found fascinating. I certainly wish it were the case. That would help me to justify why I'm trying to learn so many different things. But do you think, I mean, would we need a new kind of Sputnik moment to kind of create some sense of urgency around incorporating arts education into, I mean, in, in the university level, I mean, humanities in general are challenged in, in a major way. And, and I think arts are probably even more, we don't, I think at Berkeley, our, we don't, our studio art department is not really a fully legit department. <laughs> what would that look like? What would have to happen for people to believe that arts deserve the same type of importance, if not of science and engineering, at least as important as athletics. At least as important as athletics. You know, I, I'm not very optimistic that that would happen. 
I will say that COVID did provide art teachers with the argument that their kids were traumatized. And when they came back to school, the arts should be given a more important place because this is where kids were going to find comfort and, and be able to express their feelings. I can't say that happened because I haven't heard of any changes in the curriculum in schools, but I think that that was a possible mini Sputnik moment when people might have thought, this is why we need the arts. We need it to, for, for psychological health and well-being. Can't we just give people pills? Wouldn't that do the trick? Well, you know, it would be nice. We could pop a pill to feel good, but, you know, antidepressants, there's a lot of controversy about how much they make people feel good or whether it's a placebo effect. I'm sure they do some good, but, you know, it's not very easy to come up with pills to make you feel good. Plus, you, want, you don't want to just feel good. You want to think and have meaning and purpose in your life. And I think the arts give you meaning because the arts make you think. The arts make you think about the human condition. I know that sounds very cliched, but I really think it's true. It makes you think about love and death and why we're here. Well, I have a friend who took a class, a virtual studio art class from Stanford during the pandemic. And I don't think she really enjoyed it nearly as much as the bricks and mortar kind of studio art class that she took when she was at university. It seems like if a studio where you learn where you learn art is it's very visceral experience It's very something very difficult to replicate in the online environment right right and you want to be able to see the works of your peers up close and not just on a screen and you want your teacher to be able to come and touch your work and maybe even demonstrate something on your work so yeah but that's true of any all virtual classes i think they were never as compelling as taking a face-to-face -face class so last question, you worked with the education testing group for a while. Do you think that we, in order to get arts education back into the curriculum, we're going to have to have sort of a SAT-like way of assessing arts capacities in, in order to evaluate instruction, instructional effectiveness and performance? I mean, I remember when I was in college, I got a, I took a course in sculpture and I, and I got a C and I didn't get a lot of C's, but I realized that the grade was based entirely on attendance and it was a 9 a.m. class. So I was late for every class and, and that was basically my grade. And that seemed to be the only way that people evaluate art because they're afraid to say, oh, this is good art or bad art. Or they, people don't want to, they don't want to evaluate or judge because they think that creativity is creativity and there's no objective kind of good or bad or right or wrong in the world of art. Do we need to kind of get over that? I don't think that, I think teachers do not know how to assess. It's a huge problem. Sometimes they assess on effort, sometimes on neatness. I am not at all surprised that you were assessed on attendance because it's measurable. It's something you can count. I think that the United States really lags behind Europe in methods of assessment in arts learning. And if you, look, if you go to Holland or Germany, what you find is that students are given long-term, I'm talking about high school now, students are given long-term projects, which they can work on for months, and they are assessed by having a judge and another judge, two judges. It could be the, the, child, the student's teacher and another external judge come and qualitatively assess the progress that the student has made. And this is difficult stuff to do because you can't just check off boxes. You have to really look and think, and then you have to discuss it with the other judge until you reach some kind of agreement. 
And when students are assessed in that way, if you had been assessed in that way, you would learn. If you had gotten a C based on that, you would have learned what you had not learned, why you hadn't progressed. So we really need a deep, qualitative assessment. The way we assess athletics, you know, we assess, if you think about the Olympics, I'm not talking about something like the how fast you can skate, the speed skating, that's just done by a clock. But if you look at gymnastics, that's a qualitative judgment made by more than one judge on the quality of the performance. And it's a holistic judgment, although you might be able to break it down by components as well. So I think we need to have that kind of assessment actually for all areas of the curriculum. And it means looking at progress, looking at the initial sketches, the initial plans and how it's changed and over time. And also interviewing the student about what the student thinks he or she has learned. Well, Owen, thank you so much. This has been great. We've got a book called How Art Works, which I, I found fascinating. It's got, we barely even scratched the surface. It's deeply philosophical work. It sits at the interface of philosophy and, and psychology and art, of course, and also uneasy guest in the schoolhouse. I, I look forward to seeing what happens in terms of our arts curriculum going forward, but there's certainly some hope and in part due to your work at Harvard and Boston College. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.